the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I was joined in studio by a panel of experts to talk about housing. Now that we know the true level of new house building in Ireland, what should the government do about it? Later in the show, you'll hear from Irish banker David Duffy, who's planning to merge his Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank with Richard Branson's Virgin Money in the UK. But we'll start, as always, with a roundup of some of the main stories of the week with Irish Times business reporter Peter Hamilton. Peter, you're very welcome. Thanks. Uh, we're going to start with the summer economic statement, which is a precursor to Budget 2019. And Pascal Donoghue was uh, giving us an outline of what he's planning to do. It was quite prudent uh, what he set out yesterday. Uh, 800 million, million euro prudent was allocated. Pascal. Prudent I think he's Pascal, being called or, now, yeah. Yeah, fiscal. <laughs> but anyway, uh, 800 million was allocated for new tax and spending on budget day. Using all of the available fiscal space, uh, Pascal Donoghue would have been able to to spend uh, 4.3 billion. Um, mm. But he's targeting 3.4 billion, of which 2.6 billion is already allocated. So there's yeah, a lot of a numbers in there. Over, so his, yeah. his regular room at the minute is 800 million yeah. euro. That's presuming there are no tax increases along the way, which obviously would increase his headroom. Indeed. Yeah, so it, it is. And and b- b- what's being left over then is an additional 900 million. And that would mean that the deficit to GDP would would uh, be 0.3%. With his targets now, it'll be 0.1%. So it's, it's, it's effectively a very, very small deficit to GDP. But it's worth noting that one of the charts in his summer economic statement yesterday showed that we have been in deficit since 2000. Mm. Uh, We haven't been raising more taxes than we've been spending. And as Cliff Taylor writes in today's Irish Times, perhaps it's time to start looking at changing that, uh, start moving into a surplus position. Yeah, and they have been talking for a few years about balancing the books and uh, and effectively getting to that point, haven't they? But we haven't reached it as, as yet. Did he give any indications... As to what he might do on the taxation front, everybody's uh, wondering, for example, uh, if their income tax bill is going to be reduced in the next budget. There was an understanding that that there won't be much movement on income tax. I suppose he set out that the the broadening of the income tax base the last time around has worked relatively well, and there isn't a whole lot of scope for him to this do that. This is the entry point at which you hit the top rate yeah. of tax. Um, mm. but, but there isn't a whole lot of scope for him to do that, and I suppose what he can do like last time around is you know, last time around, commercial uh, property tax stamp duty was was increased. So something like that could affect slight movements in income tax. But it, it doesn't seem that that huge changes are likely. All right. Okay. So we'll move from there to uh, unemployment figures, and uh, the CSO has uh, come out with some new data on unemployment. And the ESRI, of course, had its uh, its latest quarterly commentary out. They seem to be a little less uh, bullish on unemployment levels than some other commentators. Yeah, I suppose t- today's very positive news is that we're back. Uh, we've eclipsed pre-crash levels of employment. So that's good news. I suppose this is just a technical level. We we, we have 600 people now more than the peak of the crash. So that's good. But bear in mind, we also have a, a bigger population than we did uh, back then. So in the first quarter of 2018, un- or employment rather, stood at 2.2 million people, uh, marginally above the boom time high. But I suppose we are still well behind the pre-crash rate in terms of the employment rate, which is 67.9%. But the, the actual number is slightly higher. Mm. Um, and meanwhile now, the ESRI is forecasting that the decline in unemployment will stall slightly. Uh, earlier this year, it said that unemployment would fall to 5.4%. 
in 2018 and it's revised that back to 5.6%. And yet we had some figures out from the CSO and they've revised the unemployment figure from 58 to 5.3%, which is quite dramatic. It is dramatic. Uh, and, and what you were saying earlier about the uh, ESRI being a bit less bullish, they've also downgraded next year's rate. They had it initially set at 45 and they've pushed that up to 5%. And meanwhile, uh, IBEC suggesting that we need thousands of extra workers if the construction sector is to start hitting the kind of targets that we need well, for demand and supply to come into equilibrium. Yeah, so a report issued Monday by IBEX suggested that we need 80,000 extra workers just to meet current housing demand, and that'll need to rise to 110,000 to meet the 36,000 houses a year we need after that. Uh, and they say that today's employment figures mask the mass exodus that happened in the construction industry. And, and of course, uh, they, they're calling for... For, for more workers to come back to return. A lot would have emigrated over the years. I suppose uh, this is not the first time we've heard this call. The Construction Industry Federation have been calling for this for some time, saying that we need more workers. So it's not usually surprising that IBEC are chiming in as well. Whether the workers will return, because there is evidence that they earn more elsewhere, especially in the UK, uh, whether they will return remains to be seen. Yeah, it's going to be a challenge because... Uh, property uh, Industry Ireland, which is the unit within IBEC, is saying that employment and construction uh, is currently standing at 137,700, uh, and that was an increase of 12,400 uh, in the year. So in the past year, we've added 12,500 people, roughly speaking, and IBEC says we need 80,000, so it's going to take a number of years to bring all of those uh, skills back into the market. Um, they also point out that we lost 160,000 jobs uh, during the downturn from the construction sector, so huge challenges there. There are huge challenges in the housing industry generally. This is just another one. Uh, people to build build the things, finding those people will be difficult in itself, it yeah. would appear. Yeah. Now, one uh, company that had problems trying to get something built in Ireland was Apple. They had pla- proposed a data centre for Athenry in County Galway, but uh, for one reason and another, through planning challenges, uh, they described, just decided to scrap that project. Uh, but Tim Cook was in town yesterday and he said that they're not put off investing in Ireland. Yeah, it seems like a long time ago that this Athenry debacle happened. But, uh, of course, yeah, as you mentioned, Tim Cook in town, and he said that they may consider locating another data centre here. Uh, but that would require changes to the planning rules that would reduce time limits for applications. Now, he's saying, you know, he was clear on this, that he's, he's not saying the government should do what companies want him to do, but there should be some certainty there for business. Uh, He said that when Apple's requirement dictated that they needed to expand their data centre capacity, it would again consider Ireland. Now, remember, they have another data centre currently being built in uh, Denmark where they've already built one. So it's it's unclear when when they will need that additional requirement, but at least relatively positive news that he, he may come back to Ireland if they do need a data centre. And he seems to be redoubling his commitment to Ireland. I mean, I think there's something like 6,000 employees in Cork. So Mm. Apple, a big uh, employer here. And also, we don't know precisely what the number is, but they obviously uh, pay a big chunk of corporation tax to the Exchequer every year. Yeah, they've been here since the 1980s and and he's fairly committed to here by the sounds of things. He he dismissed any suggestion that changes to Ireland's corporation tax would impact them and and would put them off their investment here. So it was positive enough from Tim Cook on the whole, what he was saying about Ireland and and what they may choose to do here. I suppose he was slightly less positive on the US president who criticised for for the the, the awful detention of children uh, separated from their parents at the border between US and Mexico. He called it inhumane and heartbreaking. Uh, yes. Of course, he's not the first person. Uh, it, 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 it is a, a 
I wonder will Donald Trump listen to Tim Cook? Well, what Tim Cook was saying was that he'll listen, but whether he'll do something about it, well, that's a different matter altogether. Yeah, all right. OK, Peter, we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Uh, now to property. And last week, the CSO produced new data showing the true number of house bills each year in Ireland. It showed that just 53,000 new homes were built between 2011 and 2017, some 60% below previous estimates. Joining me to discuss this and other issues relating to the Irish housing market are Irish Times reporter Omber Kennedy, Orla Hegarty, lecturer and an assistant professor of architecture at UCD, and Dominic Doheny, managing director of John Flanagan Developments and president of the Construction Industry Federation. You're all very welcome. Owen, you might take us through those uh, CSO figures. Yeah, just by way of background, I mean, the controversy over the government's housing has been rumbling along mm. the sidelines of the... Something uh, you've been writing about and you've been yeah. very critical of the fact that we didn't have accurate numbers. Yeah, it's, it's been rumbling on the sidelines of the housing crisis for several years and traditionally the government uses um, electricity connections to, as a proxy to count new bills. Now this is kind of, uh, as academics like Orla have pointed out for several years, this is a, a pretty bad measure of, of uh, the kind of housing supply we have. And after much arm wrestling, the government last year tasked the CSO with coming up with more accurate figures. So they took in a, a number of other data sets like the BORs, like stamp duties, and they've come up with this new figure that we had 53,000 homes built over the last, over seven years, between 2011 and 2017. The government had originally estimated, as you said, 84,000. So a big overstatement. Uh, and just to put that in perspective, that 53,000 over seven years compares with a high point in 2006 of 92,000. So you can see one year in the boom equates to seven years in the recession. So pretty stark figures. And, uh, you know, I suppose that shows you just how, how grave the current crisis is. Mm. And in 2017, the figure was uh, just shy of 14,500. Orla, why is it important that we have proper and accurate uh, data on new house bills? Well, firstly, I'd like to welcome that the CSO now have taken charge mm -hmm. on this and that they have a new methodology. I think uh, what they've done is the first step. They obviously uh, have said they would need to refine it further and, and, and do more. Uh, but they have refined the ESB data down to what is actually new connections. Um, the reason it's important, uh, I suppose there's several aspects to this. Firstly, it's a fairly significant part of the economy. Uh, and that means that planning has to be done around that in terms of everything from mortgage lending to uh, employment, uh, but also in terms of capacity to to uh, increase housing output, uh, we need to know what we're doing now and we need to know where the capacity is to build on, on what we have. So it's very important that we have accurate information for everybody from the economists in so the central bank right down to people who are suppliers yeah. in industry. OK, well, we've had a lot of policy making in the last few years, a lot of changes to policy around housing over the last few years. Was, was all of that uh, misguided, uh, in a sense, based on false data, uh, perhaps not the right, uh, you know, were we taking the right measures? Well, I think if we look at policy in the last few years, it's been more about, uh, I suppose, restoring a market in the housing rather than building houses. Um, so the focus has not been on the output so much as recreating the conditions in which housing might happen. Um, viability. If, well, viability, which I think is a word we shouldn't be using at all. Um, uh, but, but really about uh, restoring a house building industry or, or making the conditions that a house building industry might thrive in rather than actually looking at what needs to happen to build houses. Yeah. If you were the Minister for Housing, what would you do? Um, uh, a number of things, actually. I think I would stop uh, tweaking policy and stop particularly on the planning side. I think that's causing enormous uncertainty and it's encouraging speculation. Um, secondly, I think I would look uh, hard at, at methods of procurement. Uh, all of the housing policy really has been directed to 
private sector speculative procurement, which is only one way of delivering. Um, I think given the scale of the crisis and the limited capacity in that sector, we need to go back to the egg and the frying pan to make the omelette, uh, rather than being looking at building omelette factories and, and creating conditions for that. Um, we have land, uh, unlike a lot of other countries that have a housing crisis, we have uh, a significant proportion of, of zoned land that's in state control. Uh, and we have uh, control of the public procurement system in, in, in many ways that we can certainly improve. And we have opportunities to standardise things in terms of design and in terms of procuring components for buildings. So it needs a very different approach, I think, that has to be construction-led rather than market-led. OK, and I heard Lorcan, sir, uh, a few days ago suggesting that I think something like half of the new homes that were built last year, uh, they were small projects, they were done by uh, small builders, shall we say SME builders, rather than the, the big ticket property developers. And he was suggesting that more policy needed to be directed towards uh, those people to try and help them uh, build more rather than the big ticket projects. Well, I, I've spoken about this before. I think we need the Dunkirk solution, which is all the little boats. We need every solution for housing now, be it vacancy, be it uh, small builder, be it conversions. Uh, but very particularly, I think the, the house building sector needs to be uh, given focus and support. Um, a lot of po- uh, policy is actually being driven by the land development sector. There's often a lot of confusion between developers and builders. But the traditional house builders were decimated by the crash um, in terms of losing staff, uh, equipment being sold, um, losing the ability to capitalise, you know, buying land, uh, borrowing for new schemes. And uh, that sector, traditionally, every time there's a crash, and and the evidence shows this, that sector gets more decimated with the crash and the larger players tend to hoover up a a larger market share. It's much harder for the smaller SMEs to recover. Uh, But actually, the solution is in the SMEs because the larger players in this sector um, have, have very little capacity and a lot of them just have management capacity, land and finance, rather than construction capacity. And And even if you look at the larger players that are there at the moment, even if they up their capacity in the next year or two, they're probably only going to generate about 10% uh, or 15% of what's actually needed. Uh, What is actually needed? It'll be the small builders who take up the slack. Yeah, Ibecker's suggesting 36,000 homes uh, a year. Um, That's the kind of run rate we need to hit. What's your view? I think the jury is out on it. Um, Owen mentioned about 90,000 or 92,000 at one stage in the Mm. boom. I, I think when you look at actually the net... Uh, increase in stock over those boom years from the sea, from the census, um, you'll see that it, it's not running at more than 50,000 per year averaged out over those census years as a net gain. So I, I would question whether the 90,000 actually maybe was accurate going back that, that far as well. Um, in terms of... What just explain that to us. What do you mean by a net gain of uh, 50,000? Well, what the, happened to the other 42,000? Well, in homes? those... Well, some lost through obsolescence, just buildings by their nature reach the end of life uh, or they get replaced by something... Uh, on the same site. Um, if you look back at those kind of boom years and you look at the net number of houses that the census uh, enumerated, uh, were it, at, at most um, you're looking at an, an average annual over those years of, of about a 50, 40, 50,000 gain in stock. So uh, it's questionable whether the 90,000 maybe, and maybe there's more work to be done on the CSO side on that. Yeah. Dominic, you're here representing the property industry. Why aren't your members building more homes? I mean, the land is there. Uh, the economy is flying at the minute. Uh, the banks are, are lending again. We have a lot of uh, private equity players in the market now prepared to lend money into this booming Irish property sector. Prices are rocketing, double-digit increases, annual double-digit increases uh, every month. What's holding your members back? Well, I suppose I, re- I represent... Um 
all of the actual Republic of Ireland, and um, so not just the actual Dublin market. Um, and our our members are builders, or I just referred to it in that, like we're, we're construction companies, we might have land, so we're developers, some of us are developers also. Um, and we're like any manufacturing facility. We have to, If we're not out building, which is our end game, we're not making money. And obviously we're all in this, no bit different than anybody else, any other manufacturing uh, industry, we're in it to make money. Um, and if you look outside, outside of Dublin, um, a lot of our members, most of our members have a lot of land, uh, but and Orla said she doesn't like the word viability, but it's not viable to actually build. Why? Um, because the replacement cost is still above the market values. So you take the Midlands, where I'm from and where I live and I operate, um, the average cost of a three-bedroom semi is 200 grand to buy in the market. We would need uh, approximately 240, 245,000 to, to go out and build into the market at the moment. Um, so therefore, Does that include the land acquisition cost? That includes your actual land, yes. Okay, yes. so That's did you the, pay too much for the land? No, that would be discounting the land back to literally very small money. Like, you know, that would be discounting the land back to €15,000 uh, per unit. So, like, I mean, it, that, that's very small money. Um, and you, you would find it very hard to go out and buy your land for that in the marketplace at the moment. But if you put a, a business proposition to your bank in the morning to go and build um, a new stock in the Midlands, you would not get development finance from your banks. And the main reason for that is that, that they would actually look at the market. They would say that, well, if we send a valuer out in the morning to value your 245,000 uh, houses, that um, they would be valued, they would come back in with comparable valuations of two hundred thousand. So therefore, they wouldn't they wouldn't grant a mortgage to an applicant. Mm. Um, for, Is there for a shortage of housing in the Midlands, Dominic? There's a huge shortage. Um, um, there's a massive demand. Um, rents are uh, soaring uh, because of the shortage of uh, stock. Um, and it, like, there's a massive. So why can't you charge more for these? There's a massive contradiction out there. Yeah, why it, can't you charge more then for these uh, new bills? If there's a, a, would, a huge demand for new housing, I would challenge the methodology in relation to valuations. Um, so the bank is relying on comparative comparative valuation. If the, if the valuation is saying that the, if the comparison comes in at 200,000 for standing stock or uh, for market stock, well, then they're never going to get up to the 245,000. Mm. Eventually, that will wash through the system and eventually you'll get there. But that will be two years off. Um, it, like it obviously got, we got there in Dublin, we got there in the out, uh, on the outskirts of Dublin, in the greater Dublin area, in Cork, in the out, outskirts of Cork. Um, in every other area, we haven't got there yet. So you will not see any new houses being built until that actual methodology is changed or we literally just uh, wait and, and, um, and um, wait for time to, to pass us until it does change. Now, the government has introduced a number of policy measures to try and get the market moving and to try to assist uh, builders and developers uh, to, to build uh, housing units over the last uh, number of years. Have they done enough? I think that... Um, um like there's no one silver bullet here and um, all of those measures there are very few of them that I would actually take away um, and in actual fact if they took away any of them it would only it, it would only reduce the amount of houses being currently built into the market um, but I think there are probably there, there, there's one big, uh, there's one big uh, part that I would definitely have a focus on, and I think your paper covered covered it recently, and that would be the buy to let. Traditionally, uh, buy to let represented about ten to fifteen percent of of any of any um, 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 of any market release uh, that a developer would have. Um, that obviously is gone now. 
gone because a lot of those buy to lets now are being repossessed by the banks. Um, they've been brought back into the market and probably bought by uh, owner occupiers. And with the draconian tax uh, that, that we have on actually buy to lets, you know, um, your paper thing covers seventy five percent that the actual the the, the tax rate is seventy five percent. And yet, when, when we look at the homelessness and we look at the cost of housing, the homelessness in hotels. I did an exercise before I came up here this morning. Um, that um, outside of the, the city areas, um, to house somebody in a hotel for a year um, is costing in the region of 40,000 and the city is costing between fifty and 70,000. Um, yet, if you get a 1,000 euro for rental on a rent to buy a house outside the city, you're getting um, a 1,000 euro top of the market a month, that's 12 grand, um, and um, you're paying 75% tax on it. It does not make sense for that particular sector of the market to enter back into the, mar- into the market, either to buy stock from distressed sales or if there was a, a new release in into the market by a developer, that ten percent of your market is gone. Nobody will be able to finance that with the draconian tax. Mm. The tax There's there. a lot of landlords in the market now, and they seem to be doing quite well. And I'm sure if you ask anybody who's just rented a property in Dublin, uh, they would suggest to you that the landlord must be doing very well given the frothy rents they're paying. And we're also seeing big institutional players coming into this Inter- market in recent years, the likes of Ires, Kennedy Wilson, and now Irish Life. If you take, if, yeah, but if you take the SME landlord, um, I know a lot of them personally, um, and uh, most of them I know are not in negative equity, um, but yet they are subventing the cost of uh, of their mortgages on an annual basis. Um, and once the actual market value increases, um, they will be disposing of those and getting out of the rental market. It doesn't make sense. So you're going to eventually you will have no uh, none of the small SME landlords left in the market. It doesn't make sense. It's not a business. It's not a business proposition anymore. And the ones that you're referring to in Dublin, the likelihood is that if you do, do your investigation on it, it probably would be that, that that's old stock that, that that's been there some time. They're actually uh, their loan to value would be quite low. But you have very few people, except for the large corporates, buying buying new stock for um, to rent back into the rental mm. market. Okay, I'm not sure there'll be so much sympathy for landlords out there. But anyway, um, Orla, can I ask you, 92,000 uh, units were built before the crash uh, per year. Uh, Owen mentioned that figure earlier. And if you think back then, it doesn't seem to me that affordability was any better uh, back then than it is now for young couples trying to get into the uh, market. And yet we were building so many new houses, a multiple of what we're building now. So... Why should we believe, why should uh, people who are looking to get on the property ladder believe that even if we get to 36,000, a run rate of 36,000 a year, that houses would be any more affordable than they are now? I think it's important to point out that, that how the construction industry works. Um, uh, there, it's not a, it's not a widget factory. Uh, increasing supply is not going to reduce price by any significant amount, uh, because the input. If you try and double capacity, your input costs immediately increase. There's, there's capacity constraints in the in- industry, so if you try and double output or, or double it within a number of years, um, what you will have is firstly you will have uh, wage inflation, you will have sk- uh, pressure with the skills shortage, so that the people who are skilled and which is nearly everybody in construction now will be able to charge more because they'll be in demand. People will have to immigrate. Again, they'll have to find somewhere to live. All of that puts pressure Land on Land prices will probably go back up. Yes, it will. And, and, and But the supply chain is also very complex. So when you factor in the complexity of the supply chain and the cons- complexity of the sequencing of trades and things on site, uh, any pressures on that system in terms of trying to increase capacity actually increases cost. Uh, things take longer because you're waiting for specialist trades to come in and quality is impacted because things are done quickly or not done properly. So uh, the idea that increasing supply will somehow streamline efficiencies in the system and bring in more competition, I think is a sort of a naive analysis of it. Um, all well, of the Central Bank of Ireland Governor Philip Lane said yesterday in an interview with Bloomberg that house price growth would cool uh, because of uh, you know an increased number of housing units coming to market. 
But if you look, it, it, that would be if you just assumed that new build is its own market. But new build housing and new build apartments comes into the general housing market and it's a very small proportion of it. Uh, it you know, so you're probably talking about 10, 15 percent of the overall housing transactions in a year. The new build stock is not enough to influence the overall market trends. And the overall market prices are set by earning capacity, lending rules, um, you know, the amount mm. of equity coming in from abroad, the amount of... Uh, 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 Debt that's ava- or credit that's available to people, um, so that's what set, sets house prices. Uh, it's not the new stock coming in. Well, it's quite a new, depressing analysis, uh, or you seem to be suggesting that there isn't. Well, the there, pri- the pri- there isn't much of a glimmer of hope uh, for uh, going forward in the Irish um, property market. Uh, I, I think it, I think a different approach is needed. I mean, if if we are looking to uh, both the private rented sector and, and a subvented private rented sector to to solve the problem, and a niche uh, market at the high end of the market in terms of supply, which which is now quite specialised into either high-end or student housing or build-to-rent, which are specialist niche areas. Um, it's not sustainable that the state, by the end of this year, will be putting nearly a billion into subventions in the private rented sector. That's not sustainable. Um, something will have to give somewhere along the line because there's a huge cohort of people who are not eligible for social housing and for support, but also are not able to access uh, housing at an affordable level where they can meet their own needs. You know, The gap is widening between the top level for social ha- the social housing and the bottom level for what you can borrow against. Why isn't the state building uh, housing itself on uh, state lands? I know there, there, there is some housing being built, but you know, why aren't we getting more of it? Uh, it's very hard to know. I think there may be something of a fear that it might disrupt the private uh, speculative building market in some way, which has been uh, talking about viability for the last number of years and that in some way that might disrupt that uh, that model, um, but I think there's plenty of space there for for a third for a, for a middle tranche of affordable housing, which uh, either t- in terms of rentals or purchase, uh, that doesn't necessarily have to disrupt uh, uh, that market um, in in how it's structured, and it needs something of a more sophisticated model, I think, than than we're looking at at the moment. Owen, you were at the launch of the summer economic statement uh, by Pascal Dunne, who at the Department of Finance uh, during the week. Any sense from him that in the upcoming budget or perhaps down the road? that the government uh, might intervene in the market, might start building more uh, social and affordable housing? I'd have to say absolutely none. Um, and we're getting the same sort of uh, metrics being trotted out. We're, we're getting the same numbers around a, a big capital spend, but no major intervention. I mean, it seems, or let's put our finger on it, that the, you know, the affordability question is, is, the, is, is n- n- bigger than the supply question. I mean, that's just not being addressed. And we had those big, massive uh, mons- monster bills during the, the boom with inflation at thirteen and fourteen percent, which is where it is now, um, it's 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 a question. If if you look on on my home or Daft at the moment, uh, average price in Dublin around three hundred and thirty thousand. Um, you'd need an individual or a couple with a household income of around ninety thousand to get a mortgage to pay for that under the current central bank rules. So, and that's way in excess of average uh, incomes in the country. So. That's an issue that's not just Ireland's, it's it's an issue that's in the UK, it's an issue that's in parts of America. So that's just not been addressed. And for some reason, you know, in, in previous decades, and Orla's written about this, uh, the public sector housing um, segment used to work in kind of symbiosis with the private sector. So once one went off, one went on. So when there was slack in the private sector, the social housing uh, rate picked up. Now it seems to be completely separated and we seem the government policy, which may, may be based around short-termism, is based around uh, you know, subventing rent. 
So we have, as I want to say, a bigger, bigger draw on the public purse in terms of rental supports through HAP and a very low level of social housing build. And the problem of affordability uh, is going unaddressed. Dominic, would you agree with all those masses? Um, I actually would. Um, um, and I think that really, I suppose, probably the biggest reason that why the state are not building more houses is the reliance on par five. And when the This um, is whereby private house builders have to set aside a proportion yeah, traditionally of 10%. Traditionally, it was 15%, and then that was reduced back to 10%. Um, and, um, and, and, and the new regulation means that it can't be, can't be traded to another site, it can't be, can't be uh, traded for cash. Has to be has to be developed in that particular site, which might actually, which might actually yield something. You know, at, at this stage, it might might yield a real ten percent for the actual fifty percent was there was probably yielding nothing, because a lot of developers were trading it off, um, like trading for other sites or sites in kind or, or a cash equivalent or whatever. Um, so now there should be you should, we should see that ten percent absolutely coming through, um, but I think that particular skill set within the um, within the county councils has been lost. Um, and I'd say it'll be it'll be probably never before like you know uh, it's probably gone forever. Um, it takes a long time to build up that particular skill set. Um, but what, kind, what kind of wage price inflation are, are you seeing in the construction sector at the minute? Well, like what Laura was saying, like the um, you know there was a major challenge out there at the moment in relation to the skill set. Uh, we lost a huge amount of people uh, uh, to overseas. Now we're trying to attract them back um, with the, with huge difficulty. A lot of those people now have settled into a different um, into mm. a different economy. And, and I beg suggesting we need eighty thousand workers to come back into the construction I wouldn't, I wouldn't sector disagree. to get up to yeah, the level dis- to meet demand. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that. But I, I but I do think like you know you talk about government initiatives. That's one particular initiative that the industry absolutely needs their assistance on. And we need to sell Ireland. We need to sell it abroad. Um, and we're talking about rebuilding Ireland. Um, I don't think that, that that actual. I don't think that's believed in. I don't think the ND, the um, NDP, the 116 billion. If you're talking to people from abroad that you're trying to get back home, they don't believe in that. Yeah. Uh, it's a 10 year plan, um, and so they're going to. You're expecting them to uproot, come home, and and there's 10 years work here for you. But they do not believe that, and the government are going to have to do something to sell that abroad. And I think if they do and do a good job in it, we will actually get back the requisite skills that we're actually shy, shy of. Mind you, I'm not sure where those 80,000 people uh, would live if they were to come back to Ireland. Or I'm going to give you the final word. Do we need uh, a dedicated state house building agency in this country to get social and affordable housing moving again? Um, I think we need some kind of vision and leadership. I mean, if you think of the issues we've raised around the table here, there doesn't seem to be any joined up thinking. Uh, the model we're running at the moment is not sustainable. The amount of money that's going into the private rented sector isn't sustainable. Uh, it's not working for anybody. It's not working for the frontline staff and the local authorities. Uh, the capacity problems are way beyond the construction skills people. It's into the professions. It's into the capacity and the regulatory authorities construction management at every level we have we have issues uh, what we need is some vision at the top that puts in the supports in the right places where it's needed um, so that rather than tweaking policy at a high level practical uh, support that is responsive to the issues and that is actually supporting whether it's people in the local authorities at the front line who are trying to get houses designed and built or it's people on staff trying to bring back skills or it's changes in procurement policy so that people who do come back have some sense of security employment and they're not coming into a gig economy where they have uh, no certainty about work next year. All right, on that cheery note, uh, we'll leave it there. <laughs> My thanks to Orla Hegarty, to Dominic Donny and Omber Kennedy.
Hey, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be talking to Irishman David Duffy, who has successfully plotted the merger of the Clydesdale and Yorkshire Bank with Rich Branson's Virgin Money. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. Welcome back to this Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash business. Now, you might remember David Duffy as the former chief executive of AIB Bank in Ireland from 2011 to 2015. He left to become CEO of the Clydesdale and Yorkshire Banking Group in the UK, demerging it from National Australia Bank and listing it on the stock market. On Monday, Duffy announced plans for a £1.7 billion takeover of Richard Branson's Virgin Money. The merged entity will trade under the Virgin brand and will be the sixth biggest bank in the UK by assets with around 6 million customers. And I'm delighted to say I'm joined from the UK by phone uh, by David. David, you're, you're very welcome to Inside Business and congratulations on your deal. Thank you. And it's good to be talking to you again. Tell us a little bit about the, the strategy behind this. What's the motivation for taking over Virgin Money? Um, uh, yeah, it's a very good question. I, th- I think we've been looking at our strategy for three years, which was very simple when we did the IPO deliver a better bank, meet all your financial targets, deliver for shareholders and for customers. And so we had a lot of things to do, and we thankfully have done well, and that's reflected in the share price migration over that time. But as we ended that first three years, we've sort of asked ourselves the exam question, what does a sustainable bank look like in the future, given the fairly dramatic change that's going on with open banking, with disintermediation, disruption, all of the the buzzwords you hear? Um, And so as part of that discussion, we, we came up with a set of criteria that we thought defined a successful bank in this universe. And it included a single brand, we have three, a, a, a sufficient scale, so big enough to really be able to compete, a full product range, and a, a leading digital capability. In other words, you should have everything as good as any of the neobanks or others are trying to say that they have. So, so we sort of said you have to be in that space. Uh, and you have to be a player in open banking and have a an offering for customers. And, if, and that's what we think would be the minimum requirement to allow you play in the future. So when we considered that and came to that conclusion, we looked at the potential partners that would make sense, if any. So we weren't deciding we had to do a deal, but we were thinking about, is there a way to accelerate our progress? And when we looked at Virgin Money, it was very straightforward. They have an iconic brand. It's 99% recognized in the UK as a group. Um, the Virgin Money itself uh, has a, a plus 37% rating of customers, which is put it in the top decile of the country. They have a national network, which when put with ours, gives us a complete national UK capability. Um, they have a complementary product profile with, with you know, an investment product and a, a credit card product, which we had less of. And we had current accounts and SMEs, which they didn't have. And we both had large mortgage businesses. So... When we looked at it, we saw also the opportunity to put the two businesses together and in a complementary way without much redundancy in terms of the product overlap. And then, you know, that obviously presented uh, a financial, very significant step forward and uh, a lot of potential of synergies. So so when we did that, we, we asked ourselves the question, is it difficult to do? Would it be the right thing to do? What price would we do it? We agreed on all of those approaches. And thankfully, as of Monday, we were able to execute on that basis. Okay. Now, just wondering if this is the right time to be doing a big merger, because obviously sluggish economic growth in the UK, you've got the uncertainty around uh, Brexit. 
Uh, analysts suggesting that there could be possible uh, write-downs as a result of putting these two uh, companies together. And banking mergers are tricky to pull off, aren't they? I mean, merging cultures and IT systems and all of that, it's not easy. Well, yeah, very important points in that, um, you know, Karen. First off, there is no IT integration here. So that's a fundamentally different experience than many of these mergers. And what do I mean by that? There's two, they have a very simple business. So on their mortgages, over three years, as the mortgages get renewed on an average lifetime basis, um, we will just renew the mortgage onto our platform. So there's actually no platform integration. On credit cards, uh, they have a state-of-the-art thesis provider for their system. We have a de minimis credit card book, and we will just simply migrate it slowly onto that platform. So again, no platform integration. And lastly, current accounts, which is frankly where most of the complexity comes in these things, um, they only have 100,000 current accounts, and we move, on average, we did a, a promotion recently and moved 20,000 in two weeks. So most important message there, um, Kieran, is that there is no actual major systems migration or integration as people look at these things. And it's a low-complexity, phased transition of existing customers onto a single platform. Um, the second thing I think you mentioned there was, was you know, credit risk. Um, the, again, with the mortgage book they have, we know the credit risk because we have a mortgage book too. So it's just a bigger mortgage book, but we have very sort of good loan-to-value averages and the risk quality of the book is excellent. On the credit card book, which they have, um, it's a, a very clear, high-quality book with a highly affluent population in it. So again, we, we, we have, in our due diligence, been quite comfortable on that. And then I think in generic terms, you talk about timing and, and Brexit and all the rest. Um, I think pre- Brexit will come and go in whatever fashion, but, but life has to go on and businesses have to you know, survive and, and deliver for their customers. Um, so we see ourselves as um, being you know, very thoughtful and, and considerate around the implications of Brexit, uh, but very comfortable with our risk profile going into Brexit. And this is in no way going to cause us a concern it, in fact, gives us greater resilience, greater profit and capital generation, and, if anything, contributes to uh, allowing you to move through any of these cycles that go up and down with greater ease. So I'm actually confident. I think the, the transaction is good timing in that respect. Now, CYBG and Virgin Money would both have been described as challenger banks uh, prior to this deal, and, and there are still various uh, approvals needed to put this deal together. I, I don't think it's going to happen until uh, later this year. Correct me if I'm wrong, David. But you've talked about the merged entity becoming a competitor to the big four in the UK who are Barclays, RBS, Lloyds and HSBC. Is that realistic? Uh, yes. Look, I think dealing with your first point, the approval is just a matter of process under the takeover code here where once you do a 2.7, you know, it's it'll be unusual for you to go backwards after that. But there's a 60 working day approval process um, with the regulators, which takes place. So consider it as the beginning of the last quarter of this year, possibly, um, for your, your final, final approval. Um, so, yes, go back to the competition agenda. Um, I think it's it's very important to to remember, uh, in my mind, that, that the competition model is changing rapidly. So bulking up uh, beyond where we are, I don't think is required to be successful to compete. We have sufficient scale with what we would be doing with this transaction. Um, the, the way you compete in the future is much more in the open banking model, much more, if I give you a reference point, the say, uh, Ping An in, in Asia, where you have a core banking product and then you have offerings around that on the periphery, all geared towards the service that the customer is asking for and the way they live their life in terms of accessing that. So what you're going to be involving yourself in in the future 
is a bank that provides a, a solution to the customer experience. What is the customer experiencing when they're engaging with your services? And that can be probably better done through an alliance or partnership model with a whole host of providers to provide that brilliant experience. Because let's face it, banks aren't brilliant at every single thing. So find out people who are better than you are at so some fintechs, for example, and engage with them, plug them into your model and deliver an outstanding service to the customer. That doesn't require scale. That just requires smart partnerships. Yeah, now you've chosen the Virgin brand um, for the merged entity rather than the Clydesdale or Yorkshire brands, which have been around an awful long time. I think one of them has been around for over 150 years and one for over 180 years. And I see you're going to be paying Mr. Branson uh, something like 12 million a year initially for use of the Virgin brand, rising to 15 million pounds uh, after uh, four years. Why, why Virgin uh, as opposed to the CYBG brands, uh, David? Well, I think we, we looked at, we have enormous pride in the heritage of our brands. Um, absolutely. There, there is no question there. We look at B as a brand we created in the past 18 months, our digital brand. And that's, you know, that's got 1.6 billion of deposits on it. So, so we like the brands we have. However, if you want to compete, as per the previous points made, I think you have to recognize that you need a national product profile and a national brand. And the, the Virgin brand has that national presence. It has that iconic status. It has that entrepreneurial tone. It, it is not a bailed-out bank with a legacy history model. It, it's, it's seen as you know, agile and innovative and, and tech-friendly. Um, our brands, whilst they're great and fantastic heritage brands, they are more geography-based and less mobile. So very, you know, much more a regional brand than a, a national brand. So it's a balance of outcomes here where we see the long-term benefit to customers of the much broader range of services in a much broader geography mean that we would probably want to do something like this and go to a single brand nationally, even if it's not one of our own. So that's why we made the decision um, to, to, to go with the Virgin brand, given its attributes and given its national profile. Uh, now, David, you might be competing with Bank of Ireland uh, in in the market in the UK at the minute. And Francesca McDonough, they're involved in uh, con selling consumer-facing products, mortgages, and, and so forth, uh, largely through partnerships uh, with the post office and with the AA. Um, Francesca McDonough had an investor day uh, last week, and she uh, spoke about doubling the profitability of uh, Bank of Ireland's UK unit. Do you come in? Do you come into contact much with Bank of Ireland? Um, we don't really. I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, I see the guys from there at various events, but uh, from a business perspective, we don't have much interaction. No. What do you make of her plans for the UK market? To be honest, I haven't, uh, I haven't got the detail here, and I haven't had a chance, given our transaction, to focus on that. Okay, and the Irish banking market, as I'm sure you're well aware of, David, uh, is crying out for competition. So I know you've a bit of work to do in integrating these two brands in the UK, but when you have that work done, when you have your feet under the table in this merged entity, any chance you might bring Virgin Money to Ireland? <laughs> um, I, I, I honestly couldn't commit to anything like that. I think what we're looking at is very simply making this work as brilliantly as we think it can. And what I think we'll all be doing in two or three years' time is dealing with a much more existential threat from technology companies in the banking world and the, the, the partnerships that are emerging between big banks and big tech. So I think rather than expanding geographically, we'll be looking at are there um, life-changing partnerships that would make a great deal of sense down, um, down the road when that, that new model begins to emerge in a scale technology universe. So, so you'd probably have to ask me that question again in a few years' time.
Right. I'm sure you keep an eye on the Irish economy from afar. The recovery has really taken off since uh, since since you left. Not because you left, but uh, since you <laughs> left, it has really taken off. Uh, what's your view of that, David? Did you see that coming uh, in 2015 when you moved off to CYBG? Well, I, I did feel when I left, and I think as I would have said to you, I felt that Donald uh, Irish Banks was a tremendous uh, position. It, it, a lot of hard work had been done by a brilliant team and the uh, the team taking over were, were deeply experienced and hugely well qualified. So I thought the bank was in great shape. But I also thought that in an open economy like we were in, that as if Europe was turning the corner on growth and the global economy was going to start opening up a little bit, that was going to provide a, a significant upside to, to Ireland's economy. So I'm absolutely thrilled. I'm, I'm surprised at maybe the speed and, and depth of the recovery in that sense. But um, there was there was a recovery that should have been expected, but I'm delighted to see the degree of it. Right, okay. And AIB, of course, has uh, come back to market. They had their own IPO, 25% of it now listed on the stock market. Um, and we've seen in the UK that the uh, the station, you know, is selling uh, drip feeding shares, RBS shares and so forth into the market. Do you think um, perhaps the Irish government should be moving a bit quicker on, on selling down AIB shares? I, I don't know that uh, it's about speed. It's about when the investor appetite is there, when the government feels it's the right time as it looks to a much broader set of financial metrics. So, But I do think that I would always hold to the belief that uh, when it's right, I think, um, you know, allied Irish banks being in majority private ownership is the right answer for everybody, every one of the stakeholders involved. Okay. And finally, I, I mean, just going back to Brexit, David, what's, what's your view of of everything that's going on. I mean, they're really, uh, the negotiations seem to be somewhat chaotic on the British side. Um, uh, we seem to be heading for a softer version of Brexit, but we can't be absolutely sure. There's always the prospect of, uh, of no deal. What's, what's your take on, on where Brexit is going? It's a very hard one to call. I think everybody is, is not surprised that it's a complex negotiation. That was always going to be the case, and there was inevitably going to be a significant amount of discovery along that process. Um, I don't think we're going to end up in a chaotic, uh, hard exit um, from, from Europe. Um, and, and I think we'll end up with a, a solution that probably is less dramatic than feared and may take longer to, put, to implement. But it's really, really difficult to call. All right, David, we wish you luck with your, with your proposed merger. Okay, great. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, David. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Owen Burke Kennedy, Orla Hegarty. Dominic Donny and David Duffy. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.